So to begin with here, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I want to step back from what you just heard read and set it in context. Set it in context of what's going on throughout the book of Mark. He has been developing throughout this gospel. It is, it is not just isolated stories. Mark is developing. He's put this together in a particular way. And, and the tension is rising, and I want to show you that. We are, at this point in the book, beginning to reach a climactic point in which people are going to have to make decisive decisions. The book uh, of Mark is often kind of centered around what, what commentators debate about, but it'll be called the messianic secret. The idea that there is this uh, hiddenness to Christ's identity. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea when I say secret. Okay, we're not talking about a secret like, you know, spycraft, cloak and dagger, you know, stamp it, top secret, that sort of thing. That's not what we mean when we're talking about secret here. What we're talking about is that only the Holy Spirit could reveal Jesus' true identity, his mission, his work. Spiritually things, spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. Not everyone was going to understand. So it's not a secret like, oh, nobody can know this. It's a secret as in it is not clearly obvious to the eyes. It's going to be understood through the Holy Spirit and him alone. Notice throughout the book that Jesus has never walked out. You, don't, you never see in the life of Jesus where he comes out and goes, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. Here I am, the fulfillment of everything bow down, it's, you know, it's time for the kingdom. He never does that. He never comes out and proclaims things in that way, and that's why it's often called a, a secret. Rather, from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes about demonstrating what kind of Messiah he is. He sets by example. So you see with his teaching, when we started earlier in the book, it says that he taught them not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but he taught them with authority, right? He comes and he speaks as one who has authority. He doesn't just point them back to the law. He doesn't point them back to other teachers. He, doesn't. he comes and speaks to them the way Moses did. He's coming with a thus saith the Lord, and I can make these pronouncements, and he teaches them with authority. Who else can do that? but the new Moses, who's proclaiming the new law. He also comes with miracles. He goes and he says, peace be still, and the, the storm goes down. He has power over nature, he has power over sickness. They, they bring him sick people and he heals them of whatever disease can, can happen, whatever physical malady is there, and it's not only physical diseases, it's spiritual diseases, it's demons. Those that are oppressing the people. He says, go away. And they flee. He has power that can only come from God. He demonstrates that in front of them. He also goes around and, get, and, and, and pronounces forgiveness. Who can forgive sins but God? And when they're ready to, to clobber him for this, he goes and he heals someone. See? If I am blaspheming God, how is it then that I can do these miracles? I can forgive sins. You put it together. 
He has wisdom. The, the scribes and the Pharisees come, and they, set up, they sit up all night. They are in their books. They are working to set traps for him. And he comes through and, and constantly, consistently answers every question without hesitation, without prevarication, without saying, let me get back to you on that. He has a wisdom that can only be compared to Solomon. What do you make of this person? What, what are you seeing? Why is it that he walks around in sandals with a bunch of common blue-collar folk? Who is this guy? That then is the secret that is, is being unpacked throughout the book of Mark, that we are supposed to discern spiritually. Uh, everyone in Israel had preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be like or what he would do, how he's going to conduct his affairs. Had Jesus just come out and said, I'm the Messiah, everyone would have taken those preconceived notions and dumped them onto him. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is getting away from. He's saying, put your preconceived notions to the side and listen to me. Rather, Jesus is building through his teachings a, and his actions and his, all the things he's doing. He is building up a new template that, that he wants his followers to watch and to reimagine what the Messiah is supposed to be. And so it is that you see throughout the book of Mark that Jesus is basically suppressing people from announcing his identity. It starts right there at the beginning in, in chapter 1 when Jesus heals the, the man of a demon in the synagogue. And he casts him out. And the demon wants to, to proclaim his unclean clean spirit. And he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. It also says in chapter 3 that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus was not going to let his identity be proclaimed by the unclean spirits because they would have their own agenda. They are not God's means for doing this. People needed to listen to him, not to other spirits. You, you see the same thing with those that Jesus heals. Jesus is going around healing people and then they want to go talking. A, a good example of this is at the end of chapter seven. You have a man who is deaf and had a speech impediment. And they, they brought him to Jesus and they begged him to heal him. And you see Jesus go through the process and he, he heals him. And it says of this man, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. And of course they go out and they start talking about it. They don't actually listen. Therein lies part of the problem. But Jesus says, don't go around talking about that. That's not the point. You're supposed to, I think... It's like Mary. Remember how that, that phrase that Luke, Luke uses many times? She treasured these things in her heart. She pondered them. She takes them in and she considers what do these things mean. That's exactly what Jesus wanted his followers to do. His teaching would reveal his identity as well. 
And we see that this is one of the reasons that Jesus teaches in parables. His teaching is often kind of enigmatic. A great example of this we saw was in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the, what's commonly called the seed and the sower, probably better described as the, the soils, because that's really what's being contrasted there. And, and the people are a little confused, and, they're, they're, and he both starts and ends it by saying, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. He was specifically teaching in ways that those who had spiritual discernment could hear him. And those who were not listening to the Spirit of God, those who did not actually care for the things of God, would not understand him. His teaching would be hidden from them. Most interesting like this to me is Jesus' own disciples. This is building through the whole first half of the book. And you really come to a, a key point there at the end of chapter 8 and chapter 9, where Jesus finally puts his disciples on the spot. He says, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say that you are John the Baptist raised from the dead, some Jeremiah, some, you know, uh, Elijah, some. And the, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking up for all the apostles, says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus, it says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And the same thing happens after the transfiguration. They see Jesus in glory and he says, don't talk about it. Now, I don't think Jesus is trying to suppress his identity. I think it's more basic than that. Jesus is trying to gather followers who follow him for real. Followers who listen to him. Followers who are led by the Spirit. And this builds up because learning to follow Jesus is not going to be painless. There's coming a cost. In chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem with great fanfare, and the people for the first time begin to publicly proclaim him to be king. It's going from sort of an underground movement to, to now it's becoming clear. When he enters in that triumphal entry, Mark chapter 11, the people proclaim, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus shows his priority. And he goes in and he cleans out the temple. And he makes himself the, the, the whip and he drives out the money changers. And he says, this is to be a place of prayer, not of merchandise. And so he shows, he demonstrates the priority of his kingdom, of what his rule, what his administration is to be like. And so there's a lot of excitement now, finally, is Jesus going to come? And then we heard last week in Harry's sermon about how, no, actually, Jesus is telling them, it's all, they're going to reject me. This whole temple that I have cleaned, this whole worship edifice that, that, that we have established here that pray is to be to the glory of God, it's all going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. That's not how the story is supposed to go, right? 
If you've been a Jew and, and, and you've been waiting a thousand years since David for the new king to come along and reestablish that Davidic kingdom, just like the people were proclaiming, he's coming in the name of our father David, the story is not supposed to end that way. Why is Jesus telling them, I'm going to get killed and the temple's going to get ground to dust? The disciples had to know that Jesus was the Messiah, but they had to come to terms with the type of Messiah that he was. They needed to count the cost of following him. For you see, messianic suffering precedes messianic glory. And all who would follow after Jesus Suffering is going to precede the glory. And so it is that, that Jesus is not coming out and just announcing the secret publicly. He's letting people process it. There is a cost. Now, let's turn to the elites, to those who are ruling the show, who are running things in Israel. They can see what Jesus is doing. That little entry that he made into town with everybody worshiping him, and then his cleansing of the temple and destroying their prophet center, was clearly Jesus laying claim to authority on the idea, uh, uh, authority of the temple. And this idea that somehow he is the king is beginning to catch traction with the people. Understand the threat that that is. That is bad because it could bring down the wrath of Rome. And everybody knows that a construction worker with Galilee surrounded by some rabble was in no position to deliver them from the wrath of the emperor. Jesus needed to be stopped. You can see what they're thinking. It's better that we, that we kill one guy and get him out of the way and that one man die, then that the whole nation be laid waste. We need to do that. We, we should have done it before, but now we need to get this done. There is urgency in their task. And you see that here at the beginning of our, our text in chapter 14. You see, it's two days before the, the feast of the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. But they say, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they need to find out how to get rid of this guy. Because he is a threat to the well-being of the country and them. And so they want to remove Jesus now. Jesus is a marked man. This is the moment of crisis. There's no more time for wrangling about the finer points of the Mosaic Law and how you're going to interpret this, that, and the other. This is the time to decide whose team you're on. And this is a decisive decision. And you can see in the midst of this pressure cooker that the pressure is steadily rising. It's striking to me how many times you see emotional words mentioned throughout this section. We see anger and anxiety and grief and gladness and, and vindictiveness and all the different emotions. It's everyone is on knife's edge. And we're about to see that in a moment. 
This is a time of pressure. This is the moment of decision. There is going to be no middle ground and the stakes could not be higher. Life and death doesn't do it justice. So it is that into this context, this is the context into which Mark gives us these two stories, two, two short stories. And there are two protagonists, a woman and Judas. And both of their stories are driven by money. They revolve around money. Each of these two people demonstrates their relationship to Jesus by how they think about and use money. It's probably not so terribly different than today. I bet if we go and when we sat down with our bank accounts and started going through how we use our money, we would see our priorities very clearly. There might be some secret vices revealed. There would also be some secret giving and philanthropy and generosity revealed. The hearts of people are revealed by how they use money. Priorities are clarified. Money can't be spent twice. You make your decision once. Money, in short, reveals the heart. And that's what's revealed here in our story. Now, where does this story take place? It's in Bethany, it says. He's staying in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. Bethany is a small village just outside Jerusalem, not far. It's kind of just like on the hill just to the east of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a comfortable walk outside. So he's not in the city of Jerusalem specifically. He's outside. This village of Bethany is famous, most famous, because this is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus has just raised from the dead shortly before, this is where they live. And so we're in their village. But it says that he is staying at the house of Simon the leper. Now, this isn't in the text. This is my speculation. But my bet is that Simon's no longer a leper, that Jesus has healed him. I suspect that Lazarus and Simon probably compete for who gets to host Jesus. Well, he healed me of leprosy. Well, he raised me from the dead. You know, you can, you can see you know, that th this is an area that loves Jesus. This is an area where there is support for Jesus. This is an area where it, Jesus is effectively safe. Over in Jerusalem is where his enemies are. That's where the elites are. That's where the intrigue is. That's where those who would do him harm are. He's over here with his supporters. This is a village where he is protected and he is loved. This is a safe place. And this is a place where it's turning into a festival. This is Christmas before Christmas, right? This is the biggest festival of the year. This is when everybody swarms into town. This is the most celebratory time of the year. And so they're gathered right there in Bethany. I imagine the hotel rates were a little lower than in Jerusalem. And so they are staying there. Jesus and his disciples with their friends. Now, what happens? Well, they're sitting there. They're eating dinner. You can imagine the scene, and they're having their, you know, uh, kind of like their pre-Christmas dinner. Everybody's getting together, getting ready for the big festival, and they're all talking. And did you see what Jesus did when he drove those people out? 
did you see the look on that guy's face when he ran his sheep out? You know, you can imagine how they're, they're going back over the, the past couple days events and, and recounting and, and all this is going on. In the midst of all this kind of celebratory time, a woman comes in carrying a flask. She breaks the alabaster, it would have been like a long neck vessel, and she breaks that open and she goes and she pours it over Jesus' head and body. And everybody is stunned because of this aroma that just fills the house. This nard, as it's called, it's an aromatic oil that would have been imported from India. They're stunned not only by how beautiful the smell is and how pleasing it is, but by the absolutely breathtaking expense. It says here that the people sitting around estimated that it was somewhere north of 300 denarii. Now, I don't know if any of you get paid in denarii, I don't. Just to put that into perspective, we're talking like about a year's worth of wages. So for us, we might say 40 grand or, or better. Okay, so we're talking a extravagant sum of money. This is probably the equivalent of her spending her 401k on Jesus at this moment. She gave the most expensive thing she had. Why? Why could she understand that this was the moment to do it when no one else got it. I think it's because she was actually listening to what Jesus had been saying. She, she wasn't just playing the preconceived notions about what a Messiah is supposed to be, the, the way things are supposed to go. The way She was listening. Jesus has been saying for the last couple chapters, I'm going to die. And nobody really, I think, believes him. It's all like, yeah, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. That can't be, we know the Messiah. That This woman listened. Jesus has told them he's going to die, not build the Davidic kingdom now. And her preset narrative did not override Jesus' actual words. She is literally listening to the word of God and understanding it. Friends, this is what we have to be careful of. It's so often we filter the Word of God through our preconceived notions. It's natural. That, that's just the way we, we, we naturally have our ideas and our, our preconceived notions about the way the world is supposed to run. And we deceive ourselves or we are deaf to the Word of God. And it seems that all the men, ironically, in this story don't quite get it. But the woman gets it. And remember, in this culture, the, the, the women are not supposed to be the ones who are sharp and, and on the, the, the leading edge. The men are. And the men are totally missing it. And the woman gets it. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't buy into societal prejudice. He doesn't care more for the rich than the poor or the poor than the rich. He cares for all. She seems to have understood that this is the last time Jesus is going to be in Bethany. This is the last time that she is going to see him whole and well. For after this, his body will be broken and crushed and mangled and destroyed. 
and the prospect of that was more than she could bear. The thought of what was about to happen to Jesus meant that nothing she did could possibly be over the top. The thought that the God-man is going out to be destroyed and killed, well, what could possibly be excessive in that circumstance? The most momentous event in human history is about to happen. And she's apparently the only person that has an inkling of it. Her actions, her use of money, the fact that she is willing to just blow everything she has at this moment demonstrates that. Well, this breathtaking expense sets off grumbling. Uh, Probably, or maybe especially among the disciples, those who are following him are like, holy cow, what a waste. I mean, couldn't this money have been used for something more important like caring for the poor? You know there's people out there who don't have enough food to eat, and you just spent $40,000 on perfume? It makes perfect sense. I probably would have been among them. Let's be honest. To the natural eye, this is clearly a waste. We can be very tempted to be practical in our Christianity. It's not entirely bad. Sometimes it reflects the fact that we don't see truly what's going on, that we haven't actually listened to the Word of God. When have you ever given something that hurt? Have you ever given to the point where it hurt? Well, the ringleader of the grumbling seems to have been Judas. I don't know if he started it or if he just egged on the others. But you see very clearly that he has ulterior motives. He wants it to be given to the poor so that he can pocket a part of it. He's a thief. He's after money. And he is ticked off because that was a huge sum and he's getting none of it. Not a dime is going to end up in his pocket. It all just gets splashed out on Jesus. Be careful about joining in with people who complain don't know where complaints are going sometimes. Judas was instigating this. He's behind it. What we see here in the people is an emotional response. It says they scold her. They can't believe that she has done this. And you see at the end of verse 5, they scolded her. And they begin to tell her that what she has done is wrong. Friends, anger indicates that they think that this was unjust. Anger is our justice meter. Every time you get angry, what you're really saying, it's the emotion in you that says that's not just. It's never any different. You never get angry about something that has nothing to do with justice. And so they are thinking that somehow this is unjust. Friends, what makes you angry? What's going to make you want to scold someone and and go after them and and rebuke them for being so foolish? We need to get angry at times. It's right. It reflects justice. But the question is, whose justice? Our own personal understanding of justice or God's? 
We see Jesus getting angry and cleaning out the temples, uh, the temple twice. He saw that what was done was denigrating the name of God, and it made him angry. Friends, injustice should make us angry. But let's be careful about what we get angry for. Is it a personal motive, or is it truly God's justice? Well, it's at this moment that Jesus steps in and defends her. They're ready to scold. You can see the the temperature in the room rising. They are flabbergasted and angry about this waste. And Jesus steps in and says that what she did was right and entirely appropriate. She tells them explicitly that she gets it. And by implication that they don't get it. He tells them that she is anointing my body for burial. She knows what's coming. She's aware. And you all aren't aware. Then he kind of pokes at their hypocrisy. You will always have the poor. And you're always going to have the chance to do them good. Why are you begrudging this? Their complaint reveals that they're not really focused on Jesus. They have other agendas. And while Jesus may have been a part of it, Jesus is not their focus. But for her, Jesus is the focus. And so he defends her to them. And not only does she say that, tell them that she is right, he then says that she will be remembered for this forever that this is going to be a testimony to her. And John, or Mark puts this in here because he wants to draw our attention to it and say, she is the example of what we should be like. Friends, God remembers your good deeds. God remembers your good deeds. Whether anyone else has ever seen them, your generosity, we reveal that checkbook and saw where your money went. Maybe nobody else knows, but God knows. You may forget your good deeds. Our lives are buried in the oblivion of time. Who can tell me anything that their great-great-grandmother did? It's lost in time. Nothing is remembered. But God remembers. He remembers the the acts of love that are done in his name and for his glory. And, And so he marks this out and specifically lets us know this deed that she has done will be remembered for all eternity. God remembers and resurrects our good deeds. Friends, pour your lives into these good deeds. You are not serving man, you are serving God. Pay no attention to what man thinks. Strive to hear the voice of the master. Well, all of this seems to have pushed Judas over the edge. He's had it. This is too much. This waste of money, it it just seems to have driven him over the edge. He's probably been mutinous. I'm sure he has been mutinous for quite a while. He's been thieving. But this is the proverbial straw breaking the camel's back. Eleven of the twelve disciples probably didn't like it. They probably were not real keen on what has just happened, but they're not mutinous. They don't bear an animus against Jesus for it. They're just ignorant. They, They just are missing it. 
But Judas, Judas is angry because he loves money. And to see it wasted on Jesus, and he gets nothing? Well, he can sell Jesus, and that's exactly what he did. He may not be able to profit from selling the nard, but he can profit from selling Jesus. And so he goes to the priests and the scribes, and they are glad. There is relief. We found the way to get him. We have the inside man now, because if we do this in public broad daylight, there's going to be a riot. But if we can do it at night, the problem is he's with all his friends. We need an inside man. They are delighted. The pathway has been opened. Judas's heart has been revealed. He didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He'd followed him for three years, heard his teachings, saw the miracles, all that was right in front of his face, and his ears are stone deaf. His love of money and sense of grievance, whatever it was, results in cruelty. Friends, don't be surprised when there are traitors in our midst. If one of Jesus' 12 disciples was a traitor, it should not surprise us when traitors come out of the church. When Paul was dying or was going back on his final, final journey and he visited the church at Ephesus and it was the last time he was to see them, his farewell address to them was, in part, beware, there are wolves coming out of amongst your own selves. Traitors, false teachers, those who will be ungodly. Do not be surprised. Friends, who are you following? Is it the voice of the master or someone else? If we're following someone else, when those defections happen, our faith will be rattled. But if we're following the master, we will be grieved but not dismayed. We'll be grieved about their loss, but we will not question the voice of the master. Well, the conclusion of all of this is, is this. The woman spent her money and saved her soul. Judas pursued money and damned his soul. She was the wise financial manager, and he was the financial fool. Didn't appear that way to the eye, but spiritually, that was the truth. When we truly recognize Jesus for who he is and what he is, not, not the man of our imaginings, not the, the deliverance just from our fears and not all the, the things that we hang on him, but we understand that he is the true only son of God sent into the world to save us from ourselves, then we will listen to Christ and we will value him. And let me warn you, when you start listening to Jesus, it can get costly. It may hurt your lifestyle. Your children may do something insane, like go to a dangerous land to take the gospel there. It's not without cost. The cost will be high, but I promise you the benefit will be more than 300 denarii. Are you willing to listen? In our listening, let me exhort you, don't be so used to being in church and used to hearing the gospel 
that, that you can't hear it afresh, that it just kind of rolls back, that you, you know the gospel, so it just kind of flows off of you like water off a duck's back. We're at risk of, of becoming like that and not understanding the wonderful strangeness of the God-man and of what he did and of the gospel. We can warp the word of God with our expectations to Americanize Jesus, to make him socially acceptable, to meet our fears or our preconceptions or our greed. We can turn it into a gospel of morality, that God likes and rewards good people and punishes the bad. And when it doesn't work out that way, we begin to resent it. Grace becomes a buzzword that we use but don't actually live in. Or perhaps you lean the other way. And grace becomes an excuse not to pursue holiness or strive for a godly lifestyle. The fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners becomes ordinary, routine. I mean, isn't that what God's supposed to do? I mean, what else would God do? That's what he had to do, right? No. No, he didn't have to do any of it. Hear the gospel afresh. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Perhaps Christ's sufferings on the cross become ordinary to us. Now, we shouldn't drag them out and focus on them morbidly, as some do. But we also shouldn't forget it either. Do not forget that our salvation was bought at an extravagant cost, a cost that makes that woman's nard look like chicken feed. We were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man's body broken. We should marvel at that. Don't let that become ordinary. It was not done because you or I are so wonderful or special or unique or valuable. It was done because God is love and Christ is good. His kindness should boggle our minds in the extravagance of Christ's blood poured out for us needs to provoke wonder. In the next couple weeks, we're going to be finishing up the book of Mark. And as we march toward the cross, let me exhort you to let the story impress, Im, Im, affect you afresh. And not just to pass over it, because you've heard it for 40 years. In these stories is the mystery which is spiritually discerned that the true messianic secret has been revealed. Do you have the ears to hear it? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son into the world. Our minds cannot conceive of the cost that you paid to redeem the souls of sinful men. We thank you for the illustration of this woman who paid a ridiculous cost to, an, 
to anoint your son. We thank you for her having the recognition of who he was and what was happening. God, we praise your Holy Spirit for revealing it to her. We thank you, Father, for doing all of these things. And so, God, we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Lord, keep our ears open. Keep our hearts tender. And help us to value our money appropriately. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.